Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Welcome to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. I'm Colin Ellis. And I'm Nam Kiwanuka. Colin, something exciting just happened. What? I just, I ordered a pizza, frozen pizza, and it just arrived. And I also ordered cookies. <laughs> so I'm very okay. excited. Okay, just let's go back for a second here. You said you ordered frozen pizza? Yes, I'm trying to support local businesses. And there's this place called the Goodwill Pizza. And they make these pizzas, and they're apparently they're amazing. And instead of having to cook, because I have to feed my children every day. This is something I found out after I had them. Um, <laughs> and they, they're frozen pizzas, but, you know, they're not like from the grocery stores. They actually good so uh-huh. they just arrived and i had to uh, pick them up i'm very excited about dinner tonight this this goes against the whole idea of ordering pizza if you ask me <laughs> well <laughs> apparently like, this is the thing they uh, they just their pizzas are incredible i'll give you an update the next time all right yeah i want to i want to hear how this frozen pizza went <laughs> so what documentary are we talking about today well before i get to that i have a question for you sure can you tell me how to get how, how to, to get, get to, to sesame, sesame street, street. Ooh. <laughs> well yes yes i i think that that that, that should tell good. you yes <laughs> that should probably tell you exactly what we're talking about we're going to be talking about street gang how we got to sesame street which looks at the iconic american television series and how it invented educational kids television this was an experiment tag you're it No one had ever seen anything like it. I wanted to capture the family aura. Hi, Bert. But I don't think any of us sat there thinking, oh my God, we're changing the world. Ma'am, you have kids, right? Yep. Too. Do they watch Sesame Street? They did uh, when they were younger. And then I just, one of them got obsessed with Thomas the Train and another one got obsessed with uh, other things. And I, I, you know, and they stopped watching it. But um, after listening to your conversation, um, I actually want them to watch it more now. Yeah, I grew up watching it and I actually made my parents play the Here Mr. Fishy Fishy sketch with uh, Bert and Ernie. Over and over again. This was back before YouTube, obviously, and we had VHS tapes, so they would have to rewind the tape back to the beginning, and I just play it over and over again for me. So yeah, I was a pretty big Sesame Street fan growing up. I was actually it, um, when I first moved to Canada. It was one of the things that I watched to learn about American culture. Um, and when you watch this documentary, you find out that this is the first show um, in history to have an integrated cast. And I keep thinking, what if Sesame Street had never happened? Would we be as, I don't know, what what impact would that have on society now? And something that you talked to the director about is, you know, um, could Sesame Street actually be created now in this environment? And I, you know, I'm sad to think that no, we probably couldn't be able to have a Sesame Street now um, for many, many reasons. I Yeah, I, I, I'm actually surprised at just how forward thinking it was for the time, you know, it was very interested in, in diversity and in, in inclusion. And a lot of the conversations we have about those topics, you know, they feel kind of fresh, but Sesame Street was starting that, 
you know, over 50 years ago. So I think uh, credit where credit is due. Sesame Street was definitely a revolutionary program. And Street Gang, the documentary we're going to talk about, chronicles the first 20 years or so of Sesame Street and its development. And it was really, you know, spurred by a desire to help inner city black kids kind of catch up to their their suburban peers in, uh, in reading and, and writing and literacy and that sort of thing. So we're going to uh, have a conversation with Mara Negrello. Uh, she joined us from New York City, and you'll probably hear some of the Big Apple's ambience in the background. So Marilyn and I are going to talk about the show's creation and how it helped those kids and how the doc is a tribute to an unsung hero. Stay with us. Well, Marilyn Negrello, thank you so much for joining me today on OnDocs. Thank you so much for having me. I'm going to start with the most obvious question. Uh, how did you get involved in bringing this documentary together? This is a great, I love telling this story. I was lucky enough to be asked by Sesame Street to direct a music video for them. And it was a video with Ernie, which was fantastic to work with Ernie. And uh, when we wrapped, I posted a picture of Ernie and I on Facebook. (laughs) And Trevor Crafts, who's the executive producer of Street Gang, the movie, Um, had optioned the book Street Gang and was looking for a director for this documentary. And so he saw me on Facebook. We've known each other for 20 years and he called me and the rest is very much history, a very happy history for me. Well, you mentioned it was, you mentioned it was a book first and uh, I just wonder what the challenges are in in going about adapting a, a a, a documentary out of a book. Yeah. Well, the book is called actually Street Gang, The Complete History of Sesame Street. And it's very dense with information. We made a decision very early on to limit our time frame to just the first 20 years, just really tell the origin story. Because as you can imagine, there are so many characters, so many storylines, we really wanted to limit it and thereby make it stronger. Um, And then also uh, I decided to make this we decided to make this about three main characters, Joan Gans Cooney, Jim Henson, and John Stone. And then the stories would branch out from those three characters. And that gave us a little bit of a structure with which to um, build a very strong origin story. So, um, but what the book did do very strongly was illuminate all these things that I was not aware of I was not aware that Sesame Street sprung out of the civil rights movement. I was not aware that the people that started it were actually activists, you know, looking to make a real change in how children are educated. There was so much depth and thought and uh, purpose that went into putting out this show for kids. It went so far beyond what I initially thought of when I thought of the origin story of Sesame Street. Yeah, it was. I mean, so you mentioned you know it came out fifty years ago, and you know I guess at a, around this this time of the civil rights movement and activists were very involved in its creation. So I wonder, you know, if you could just talk a bit about sort of the target audience, why why they felt like they why they wanted to create this show and who was it for? So um, the consciousness in this country was just really starting to open up in terms of class division and and race relations and. Um, The people behind, the people that would be the people behind Sesame Street um, noticed that there was a big discrepancy with children who were um, 
children of color predominantly, children who were of a lower socioeconomic level, um, living in the inner cities, and white children in the suburbs. There was a big divide in um, their educational preparation, in the type of education they were being uh, you know, provided. And one thing that was very much equal, though, on all kids from every socioeconomic level was that they were all watching television. Kids spend most of their waking hours watching TV. And um, Joan, working in television herself, had already made the observation that children were learning like TV jingles. Um, any 30 second commercial that you would have on TV that would advertise beer or hot dogs or laundry detergent had these little jingles and all the kids knew it. And so the thought came to Joan and to Lloyd Morissette, uh, the other founder of Sesame Street, that maybe these techniques that were being used to create commercials, which were so effective, could actually be used for kids to teach them and to help inner city kids use this medium of television to catch up. I thought it was interesting just that even though it was it was targeted at inner city children, it, it still appealed to kids in the uh, rural south, didn't it? Oh my God. I would guess that when you look at the set of early Sesame Street and it's in an inner city block and it's on a, you know, the set looks like a, a street in Harlem with a brownstone, I'm sure most of the children watching the show had never seen a, an apartment building stoop. And they didn't live in um, neighborhoods that were integrated with people of color and white people together. Um, but everyone sort of went into this world together. And uh, it, it was really geared towards children of color in the inner city, but all children equally zoomed in to Sesame Street. It was a sensation from the start. And I think one of the frustrations for the educators who were making this show was that it was very hard for them ever to gauge the um, success of the show because there was never a control group that they could look at that was not watching to compare them to the kids that were watching. Everybody was watching. And it was just this instant phenomenon with all types of children all around the country. How did, I guess, grown-ups or, uh, uh, you know, people, I guess, uh, in the South react to the show being so popular with, with white children? I, it seems like that was a, a bit of a problem for some grown-ups. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of amazing that this program that was developed for preschoolers was the first show in television history to have an integrated cast that had never been done before. And so this was a new idea. And when it premiered across the country, in places in the South, specifically Mississippi, um, a lot of people objected to having black and white people living on the same street. And it was a problem. The public television station in Jackson, Mississippi, stopped airing Sesame Street and in response to the complaints and uh, you know people's discomfort with that 
and a commercial station stepped in and said, while you guys figure this out, we're going to play this show because we recognize that this is really good for all kids. But it was uh, amazing that this really caused this kind of controversy in the beginning. Well, you mentioned a few of the uh, pioneers behind Sesame Street earlier. You know, Joan Gans, Cooney, John Stone, Jim Henson. I think everyone's very familiar with Jim Henson. Um, I'm struck by just how much freedom they had to create this show and, and the amount of money it was given. And considering it was public television at the time, too, I, could you just talk a bit about why it is that they were able to get so much freedom and, and there was so much investment in, in Sesame Street? The, the investment I'll talk about first. This was a different time and place. And it was amazing that the United States government gave these people $8 million to develop this show. And $8 million in 2021 numbers equals about $59 million. This would not happen today. Um, it just wouldn't. But I think that this was a time when uh, consciousness was being opened up. Again, the civil rights movement, there was a lot of legislation moving in the direction of um, opening the the world to uh, inner city and people of color and this type of thing. And it was kind of miraculous that the government funding came in. This is the first show that ever went beyond just programming aimed at selling kids candy and toys and breakfast cereal. This was such an experimental show that there was nothing really to compare it to, and it, it was allowed to just blossom. And even within Sesame Street, they were um, sometimes had to hold themselves back because the creatives were given so much freedom. Jim Henson in the film talks about how he and Frank Oz would sort of they knew where they had to get to at the end of a skit with Bert and Ernie, let's say, and they would get to it in their own way, using their own comedy. And um, the the music that was produced for the show was every possible musician that you can imagine. Um, the Sesame Street Band was composed of the top session players in New York. They were truly given free reign to make the most sophisticated programming that they could. And it was so extraordinary. The writers came from late night television comedy world. The um, guests on the show were from the top echelons of show business and sports and politics even. Uh, that, that yeah, sorry, that surprised me. I, I or I mean, thinking back, you know, when I was a little kid watching Sesame Street, I didn't know who James Earl Jones was. <laughs> I probably figured it out when I when I realized who who, who he did the voice of uh, Darth Vader. But I didn't know a lot of those celebrities until I was watching your film and realized, oh my God, that's Buffy St. Marie or that's Johnny Cash. And I was just taken aback by that. And I wondered what, what, what was so special about Sesame Street that attracted all these famous people? Well, the producers... Um wanted to do that because they understood that if adults watched, it would be twice as effective. And the fact that Sesame Street caught on so dramatically from the first episode, really, that celebrities very soon were knocking on Sesame's door to be 
included and to be invited. It was quite something. Yeah, adults adults really love the show. I mean, I was actually with uh, friends once and they were showing their kid Elmo. It was the quickest way to get him to stop crying. But <laughs> they were, you know, they, it's 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 amazing just how how appeal appealing it is to adults. And, I, and what, you mentioned that it was that it was important for, I guess, adults to watch it with their kids. Why was it so important that adults watch with them? The educators that were developing Sesame Street knew from a lot of uh, observation and research that if a child watches TV with their parents, there's discussion involved. They talk about it afterwards. The, the kid asks the mother or the father questions. The parents are engaged. And so they knew that that was the key. And the key to getting the parents to sit down and actually watch it was to have Carol Burnett and James Earl Jones and all of these top flight musicians and comedians appearing so that it was like a, an adult variety show in a way. And it was a very ingenious move on the parts of these producers to think all of that through. Yeah, well, it wasn't even just, I mean, yes, there were celebrities, but it was even just the humor as well. I mean, you had Monsterpiece Theater, which I didn't know for years was based on Masterpiece Theater. <laughs> and, I, I, and, and it made me think also just, you, it, it takes, a, a, I guess, kind of a genius to be able to write jokes that are going to appeal to children and, and adults. And also you're trying to educate as well and use, I guess, pedagogy and psychology. I wonder just how that, what was the alchemy there? Like, how did they do that exactly? It was very much a new animal for everyone. The educators had never worked with TV comedy writers before. The TV comedy writers had never written anything that had to conform to certain educational standards. They created a like sort of a Bible that would help the writers to understand how to um, create their comedy that would still manage to teach. And it was so thoroughly thought out. It, like I said, nothing like this had ever been done before. Yeah, I think it really shows in the uh, episode that features Mr. Hooper or the actor playing Mr. Hooper. Can you just talk a bit about this? This is a very famous uh, Sesame Street episode. So Will Lee, the fantastic Will Lee, who played Mr. Hooper, passed away. And the writers and the producers, there was a desire to use this terrible event for good. And maybe they could use Mr. Hooper's death to teach children what death is about. And so, again, the researchers came in, the psychologists came in, and they all narrowed down what children needed to know to three things. A child needs to know that the person doesn't come back, that this is what you're going to feel. And they decided to air this episode really talking about Mr. Hooper's death in no uncertain terms. He's dead. Using Big Bird as the child who doesn't, who has been told Mr. Hooper's dead, but really doesn't understand what that means. And they explain it to him. It's a very moving episode. I'm gonna miss you, Mr. Looper. That's Hooper, Big Bird, Hooper. <laughs> they aired it on Thanksgiving Day because they knew that on Thanksgiving, for sure, the parents and the children would be together. And even though Sesame Street was airing on public television, um, 
broadcast channels actually promote this episode because everybody understood this was going to be such a valuable moment in television that Sesame Street was going to be giving such an important message out that the broadcast networks actually ran promos um, for the Thanksgiving Day episode of Sesame Street, which I think is pretty amazing. Yeah, I thought that I thought it was really interesting too that they they use Big Bird as as kind of their I guess uh, avatar for uh, the child, right? Because and, and he wasn't the only one. I mean, I, it was interesting that we were going through the different characters, and you know, Austria the Grouch was supposed to be kind of a stand-in for the Grouch in your neighborhood. It, it just it's incredible that kind of foresight that they had. Big Bird, you know, Carol Spinney. Um, Big Bird at first was a goofy, kind of funny, comical character. But very early on, Carol Spinney said, I don't like playing Big Bird this way. I think that he could be most effective being one of the children that is just learning so that everything that the child is learning, he's learning at the same time. And it was fantastic insight on his part. And it really deepened Big Bird's character and uh, worked magnificently. I want to ask you about some the um, just the effect the production had on the producers, the writers, the the musicians. It, it, you know, it's a very demanding series, and I just I wonder, I guess, how it affected uh, each person on the show. Well, there is a section of this film uh, <laughs> I call it "No Hours to the Day," and that comes from a quote from um, Joe Raposo, who explains that everything was about getting the show up. They were producing 130 episodes per season, which is unheard of today, hour-long episodes. And the amount of music that needed to be created, the amount of writing, the amount of, uh, you know, Muppet Tree, everything was huge and it consumed them. Um, Jim Henson's son, Brian, says in the film, my dad would disappear, he'd go to work, and he'd come back four days later. And I just thought that's what fathers did. And all of them just gave themselves to this project. And it's it's been amazing um, in the making of this movie to talk to a lot of the people that were there at the time because you speak to them and it's you can tell that you're going back into a period in their life that was the most... Uh, exciting, you know? Um, It really, because this was so new and because everybody just grasped it and ran with it and they were consumed by it, it was... um, It was kind of like their kid. Yes, absolutely. In fact, John Stone, the amazing John Stone, who I am so happy to be uh, highlighting in this film because... Whenever I've talked to people during the course of making this film, whenever I've said I'm making a film about Sesame Street, people have invariably said, oh yeah, Jim Henson made Sesame Street. And John Stone is the unsung hero who was the main writer, producer. He's the one that brought Jim Henson in. He's the one that brought Joe Raposo in. He conceived of the street as the set and, um, his daughters say in the film that he considered Sesame Street to be his third child. He was so in love with it, and it was really the most, one of the most important things in his life. It definitely doesn't get the credit he deserves, does no. it? No. Oh, my God, no. Really, this was, for all of us making this film, 
one of the central goals was to tell the story of John Stone, for sure. Well, it's been well over 50 years now since Sesame Street hit the airwaves. What do you think its legacy is? Oh, my God. <laughs> I, think, I think Sesame Street has always had this um, goal to present the world in an authentic way to kids to explain what the world is all about. You know, back in the day that my film deals with, you would um, present people of all races living together, people like Jesse Jackson, who was a big figure in the civil rights movement, marched with Dr. Martin Luther King and all of that, come in and, you know, lead the kids in a power chant, that kind of thing. They were talking about death. They were talking about birth. They were talking about real life. Today, Sesame Street continues in that tradition. They're skewed a little younger, but I do know that they are doing things like doing little pieces on what what does a protest mean? What is that sign about? What is race about? Because kids today are seeing a lot of things happening in their world, and Sesame Street still is attempting to explain it to them, which I think is the most valuable thing you can do for a, a, a young person starting out. Do you think it's still ahead of its time? I mean, there's so many other kids programs that, you know, they're out there. Do you think it still kind of stands, stands alone or stands out uh, amongst, I guess, a more crowded marketplace, if you will? Sure. I do. I do because I definitely know that Sesame has no peer with the amount of research and development that goes into the educational aspect of it. And yes, uh, certainly there's a lot of shows out there. And I do know that many of them have, uh, you know, shaped themselves in the image of Sesame Street to emulate that because it has been so successful. Um, So I do think they still stand out, but there is a lot more quality programming, unlike when Sesame first hit the airwaves. Well, it's an excellent film, and I I learned a lot about Sesame Street that I didn't know know before. So I just have to thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure, and I'm so happy to have this film out. I'm very excited. And that's the podcast. Street Gang is available to rent on iTunes and Amazon Prime right now from Level Film. While you're here, why not give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend about us. It helps new listeners to find the show. You can follow me on Twitter at ColinLS81. And you can follow me at Namshine, all one word. Thanks to producer and editor Matthew O'Mara, senior producer Katie O'Connor, production support coordinators Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell, and executive producer Lori Few. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you at the next screening. Mm-hmm.